But I think in times of change, which is what we're going through now, because um, it's all changing so quickly, you do need someone to say, but there might be another way or to question things or be curious or to say why. And it's funny, in, in my book, I talk about... Um, the rough diamond scheme that I set up because I, I specifically set it up because I wanted some of that fearlessness from kids who are about to be expelled from schools because I'd noticed within um, Ogilvy that they were always hiring white middle-class Oxford educated and I actually to do the changes I needed I needed them to think maybe there's another way and question it and be curious and be a pain in the ass. This week's guest is author, consultant, speaker, mentor and curiosity-charged connector, Nicole Yershin. Since starting her career in advertising at age 19, Nicole's been forging a path of change driving digital disruption inside traditional ad agencies and beyond. Hired to initiate innovation at Advertising Institution Ogilvy & Mather Group, her lab inspired innovation across brands such as Amex, IBM, BP, Selfridges, Unilever and British Airways. With an Amazon bestseller, Rock Diamond, to her name, Nicole recently launched her innovation consultancy, NYC, Nicole Yershin Collective. The aim? To help organisations embrace radical digital transformation using her experience, her why not attitude and ability to translate business problems into innovation opportunities and real business value. In this episode, Nicole is joined by a collective partner, John Caswell, who's helped businesses solve their big gnarly problems by thinking visually using a technique he's designed called Structured Visual Thinking. I hope you enjoy this episode of Maverick Thinking with Nicole Yershin and John Caswell. Today I'm joined by Nicole Yershin. Hello. Hello, Nicole. <laughs> Hello. Uh, Nicole and I go back a long time, 2006 to be precise, when we both worked in big agencies, uh, Nicole at Ogilvy and myself at McCann. Um, Nicole has recently set up her own entrepreneurial venture, which we'll get into, called NYC Collective, appropriately sitting here in NYC discussing <laughs> NYC. And beside Nicole is John Caswell from Group Partners. Hello. Hi. Welcome, both of you. It's great to be here. So... Uh, I'd like to kick off, Nicole, talking before we get into talking about what you're doing with John and your innovation initiatives. I'd like to go back to your beginning of your journey. Okay. Obviously, where you were born. I know it is for all of us. But I'd love to sort of understand a bit more about how your journey started, uh, the influences on you, your attitude to life, your childhood, your upbringing, whether it be your parents, your teachers, or some other individual in your life that injected in you your sense of belief and and direction. Um, Okay, so going way back, the the person that really stands out consciously was my dad, is my dad. And he was, he's kind of a media legend. Um, He was one of the first in the UK to set up media independence and take media out of agencies. And the first time when I started... That was back in the 80s. Yeah. Yeah. First time when I, and also he was part of the Mad Men days in the late 60s and working at CDP. Um, in one of the great agencies yeah he was the media director there so for um, people that don't know the acronym call it Dickinson Pierce call it Dickinson and Pierce Pierce that was it it was amazing amazing um, company create highly creative and um, a nice mix of media and creativity because in those days it was together in the same building and my dad was was a, with a bunch of people where they took media out of creative agencies. And you now have media independence and creative agencies working separately. 
Um, so when I first started work at Gold Queenie's Trot when I was 19, my dad was at the height of his media fame and, and campaign would report Yershin wins this or Yershin that. So I always went in into my first job with this fearless feeling of everyone was the same. I, I treated everyone the same. There was a mix of fearlessness because I didn't feel any... Um, issue with talking directly to a, a chairman or a CEO but and would equally converse brilliantly with post boys because I came from a background of getting stuff done and mm. you, to get stuff done you treat everyone exactly the same and you're not hierarchical and you treat people with respect and, and you cut through the bullshit. But you uh, decided at an early age that you wanted to work in the industry. Yeah I'd had jobs in the early days, although my dad was, uh, was highly successful and had amazing upbringing with him and my mum. We were never uh, entitled, so I was working at age 13 in Petticoat Lane Market on a blouse store. <laughs> you know, I'd still have to get money in. I wasn't just handed money on a plate. So uh, when I was 19, I'd, I'd gone to a college called St Godrick's, which was a finishing school at that time, and there was a job going in London, in, London, in Hampstead. For nice young ladies. Oh, very nice. I think my parents thought that they'd try and kind of smooth out the edges. A little bit different to Petticoat Lane. Yes. Well, that's kind of like shows you the the upbringing I had. It was... it was um, diverse. Very diverse. Yeah. And you were supposed to work hard. Parents were self-made. They came from the East End. So uh, it, it wasn't like everything was, was handed to them. They worked really hard. And so I guess that was my, my early days. And I always felt it was my dad that gave me that courage. But I since um, got, had gone on a journey and my mum had passed away recently in the last couple of years. And actually, I realised that a lot of my strengths were um, from my mum and how she was with me, which was kind of brutally honest and would totally cut through any bullshit. And it was only really in the, the later days when I really got to know her much better when I'd grown up a, that bit more and I'd done a bit of self-help um, with a course called I Discover and that I started to realise actually she played a really big role in helping me be as tough as I was and especially the work that I was doing, which was about change. You, you had to have a thick skin and especially the role that I had when I was at GGT, Gold Greenlee's Trot, you, you had to get things out of people. I was doing traffic, which is progress control within a large company make things happen on time, doesn't go over budget, the right people see it, um, get things done in essence. And so um, people, you know, the creatives, they'd try to fob me off with things and I'd have Dave Trot sitting in the corner office and I couldn't get away with saying they haven't done it. For people that don't know about the legacy of Dave Trot, you want to just give a little bit of a oversight as to yeah. the genius of the man? Dave Dave Trot was one of is is one of my mentors still, and a huge respect for him. He ran an agent, well, three different agencies, but the one that I was at was Gold Greenlee's Trot, and I think he went to Pratt Art here School in York, here yeah. in New York. So he's legendary creative, and you should read his books as well. He's done three books and Just some great blog search posts. for some of the great quotes of Dave Trot. And, yeah, uh, be entertained for an evening. But one thing was for sure is that it bred quite a few um, strong characters where it didn't matter whether you were black, white, yellow, green, male, female, old, young, as long as you got the job done. So there was some amazing people that came out of that company over those years because we were all equal. Just to go back to you talked about your mother and your father if your mother injected um, a sense of brutal candor, let's say, yes. and being honest and yeah. having integrity. What 
facets of your character do you think your father influenced? Positivity, curiosity, mm. uh, anything is possible, um, fearlessness. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to come and talk about those in, in a bit more mm. detail. Is there anything, I know you've talked about your early, moving into the ad industry fairly early on in your in your life. Is there anything that stands out as a defining moment in your in your youth or your upbringing? Um, had a seminal effect on your journey? No, I, I think it, it was, there's nothing outstanding up until I hit going to work at an early age at 19. That's when all my growth, I feel, really started because it was brutal environment to start with and I was only a kid and I had this position as, as head of traffic at age 21. I don't even think Dave Trott knew how old I was mm. but I um, I just held this position because I was able to work the system a little bit like a football team so everyone had their position so if you were in goal do not come out and try and be a forward and that's why it worked so well and so efficiently because everyone had their role to play and it was it was a it was a well-oiled machine and it was very much about team for anyone that maybe doesn't have a, a sense of what life was like in the ad industry leaving aside new york but certainly in london and i knew about it from my days early days in edinburgh that wasn't a time when there was much diversity and inclusion. Mm. And for a woman, I would have expected as your first job to walk into a very male-dominated environment where there probably wasn't a lot of respect for people's respect for the language that was used in, in different situations. Mm. It was. On one side, I think, of the industry, it was a bit of an old boys network, and the other, it was quite laddish as well. Yeah, in Gold Green East Trot, we were all very diverse, and Dave didn't worry as to what sex you were, how old you were. None of those things came into play. It was whether you were good enough for the job. Mm. So Cindy Gallup, Kate Bristow, Stevie Spring, myself, Kerry Millett, there's so many people that came out of those days working at GGT, very strong individuals um, and able to make things happen. Uh, and that was because of our training and our grounding with Dave. Okay. You've gone from starting out in traffic, which is uh, often at the entry level for someone finding their way in advertising and, okay, running the traffic department. Yeah. But to have gone from where you started... To where you are now mm. and had that either ardent ambition or vision where did it come from that faith in yourself I think it was I didn't really think about it as faith I'm I'm a fixer mm-hmm. so if I can see something that needs to be done and I'm curious I'll just say well why don't we do it another way so I just got this reputation unbelievable reputation of I mean, if you want something done, ask a busy person. (laughs) So I just got given all of these different things to do. And it didn't even have to do with my job. It was just a case of I would just deliver upon it because I couldn't help myself. It was easy for me. Um, I could spin many plates at the same time. And so what happened was after years of working within traffic and then moving to Simon's Palmer, and that was run by Carl Johnson, who runs Anomaly. So lots of us all came from School of Trot. And um, I then had two kids and my maternity leave at that time was just 12 weeks. (laughs) But I was allowed to come back um, part time. And they were just merging with TBWA and they wanted to move into a new building. And at the time, the chairman, 
chairman of Simon's Palmer said, can you move us? Because he trusted, even though I'd never moved anyone into any building before, he just trusted that I could do it. So I did, because I've never taken a challenge that I'm not able to find the right people who can, who know more than me, who can make it happen. It's just really a connecting role. I'm, I'm a kind of super connector. Yeah. Obviously, from having met you before and knowing your reputation as well, that is one of your great superpowers. But when did your actual sort of sense of your own creativity and innovative mindset become apparent? Because you moved from something that was very production orientated into a completely different space in the industry. Well, I was given the most amazing brief from the chairman at the time of Ogilvy, and that was in 2000. That was the start of kind of digital, needing to move from an analogue world to a digital world. And the chairman at the time, he was chairman at Simon's Palmer, and he knew me at Gold Greenies Trot. So again, I'd never done a CV. I just got phoned up just to say, can you help? And he called me at the time in 2000 and said, can you help move Ogilvy into the 21st century, move them from an analogue world to a digital world I've got no idea what it is that you need to do but it's very civil service here with lots of paperwork and it needs to change Mm -hmm. and we're um, losing lots of money cash flow was an issue because it was all done on job bags and paper and it needed to be really much more buttoned down and that was my skill yeah there was no digital asset man and management at that stage no yeah so it was then me going in doing an audit for three months seeing where you know the easiest place of where I could digitize and that was workflow system finance system digital asset management system digitizing all their archives going back to the 50s then um, starting to do digital delivery get rid of tapes get rid of couriers and so I systematically just started to see better ways of doing things and that's then where my creativity really took hold because I was able to see all these different companies out there doing different things and thinking actually that could work for us so I'd seen a company called Beam who were part of the mill and they were doing digital delivery. They hadn't even got a website up and running, but they were doing digital delivery of TV commercials. And I thought, well, why are we still sending tapes? And we did a business case as to this is what you're spending now and this is what you will spend if we change it. And they agreed for me to implement it. And that's just how I carried on in the early days at Ogilvy with their um, edit facility and started to to really look at how digital can make things quicker, better, stronger, faster. Mm-hmm. And then I slowly started to see, well, there's all these other things. There's something called Facebook and, and there's gaming and mobile and social and, and sending notes around to everyone and some people kind of saying, stop spamming me <laughs> because they were too busy with their day job and they weren't, it wasn't their job to look above the the desk you know it was they had to carry on as normal i had the luxury of being allowed to be a maverick by the chairman at the time for probably 16 years and that maverick chairman himself was rory sutherland well, at the time he wasn't really a maverick he just he tried things mm. so there could ha- therefore could have a really good opinion and he articulated it in such a way that people could understand and that was kind of Rory's superpower. But he really understood what it was that I was trying to do and he allowed me the space. Um, it was really, it was a guy called Mike Walsh and uh, Paul O'Donnell. Uh, mm-hmm. Rory, Rory was the one that allowed me when they said to me, we want to set up an innovation lab, and, but there's no money. 
And I thought, oh, that's great because I'll just find my own money. So I went to Rory and I said, um, Rory, you're really great at speaking. And what if I could be your agent and get you speaking slots in all these different places and I'll charge for it. And the money I get for you to speak comes into my R&D lab. So then I have a pot of money to play with. And Rory was like, yep, that's great for me. So we we started to build this pot of R&D money and it always was never part of a P&L or profit and loss. Mm-hmm. It was always part of how can we experiment doing all these different things. And then I created these semesters of learner, learning to have it because there was so many things that were happening and I was getting all tied up with every, everything being a shiny new toy. And so I created these semesters of learning to look at one thing in particular for six months. So streaming was our first semester of learning, see who was out there, see all these streaming companies around the world, attach it to business. A client at the time, Ford, had um, an issue where they wanted to do a live stream that went to 22,000 desktops in 19 countries in five languages. So I'd get the TV department to get involved, even though they said, we only do TV. Yeah, and I can imagine there'd be a little bit of pushback on that. There was a lot of pushback. <laughs> and the people that I didn't get pushback from were the ones that I pushed forward and and did all of this kind of weird stuff with. It's not weird anymore. Like you know, saying uh, let's do a upload that commercial or do digital delivery. People would scream at me and say, "Where's my tape?" Mm-hmm. And I'd say, "Well, I haven't sent it, and I'm not going to send it. And just go to your post house and pull it down." That's normal now. And it was the same when I was implementing all these different things it wasn't normal at the time to do augmented reality to do 3d printing to all of the projects that we undertook within a semester they were being done for the first time it's interesting when when you describe your your journey through traffic and production because at that time Mm. it was still traditional media yeah where do you think your interest and your lack of fear for technology entered that allowed you to spot opportunities Mm. and problem-solving opportunities through yeah. technology when a lot of people wouldn't have. They would have been resistant to it. Yet you embraced it, not just in terms of the solving of the problem for the particular business operational standpoint, but you started to apply it into the, the creative yeah. domain itself, which yeah. must have resulted in some resistance from there's certain a, people as well. There's a lot of resistance because people inherently don't like change uh, because it's scary because it's never been done before. But I would find that a good challenge because I knew once we could do it once, that means we could offer it as a solution for a new business a new business model um, again and again. So therefore, once we'd done one stream and I'd, I'd prove that it could be done, a little bit like kind of a, an MVP, you're, you're just proving that it can be done. So I'd created these six R's to with a team of people to make sure that one of our measures of success wasn't just revenue but reputation Mm -hmm. and so therefore I had to get that delivered and put it out there for awards and and for PR because reputation was part of the way that I was measuring the labs and keeping our jobs Mm -hmm. so in some respects that was my KPI to make sure that it did get done Um, and we'd always put a stake in the ground with um, with doing things that were new so we would all make sure we'd attach it to like so with IBM and augmented reality we attached it to Wimbledon now that's not moving it's always going to be the you know the last week in June the first week in July yeah. and once you've said that's what you're going to do you can't move those dates so it's like Mother's Day or Father's Day or anything that is tactical always helps when you're looking to do something brand new 
because you can't not deliver mm. it. What about, you mentioned the six R's. What were the other five R's? Um, well, there was reputation, there was revenue. The revenue, other four R's. that was kind of like from Rory or we did Rory's book uh, without him actually writing it. So the wiki man. So it was when I was starting to uh, get speaking slots for him, people would say, has he published? And I'd say no, but then he had published in brand Republican spectator so I just talked to both of those magazines and then got all of his articles and then compiled them into a book <laughs> <laughs> and then I was the publisher so therefore I could charge for not just him speaking but also for 50 copies of books for his delegates or 500 copies of books so that's how I fed my um, my revenue bit so revenue reputation, reputation like retention of existing staff because they were doing really interesting work each semester we would always make sure that the ones that were interested in big data or behavior change or whatever semester we were doing they'd put their hands up and then what they would do would be then spread the word so they were our kind of like lab rats if you like and that's how we positioned it within the whole organization not just a siloed lab mm -hmm. so retention of existing staff recruitment of new diverse talent which was a program called the rough diamond which is what which uh, my books are, the, yeah. yeah responsibility that's giving back so there was some do you know dave burrs another scottish i've interviewed dave oh, have, you okay so live yet. dave yeah. dave had a great idea along with a couple of others and he had some beautiful ideas but one in particular was ideas shop which is where you give back to a local community so the first one we did was in brixton where ogilvy gave ideas away for free for all of the local community so it was at a time where people didn't understand uh, mobile optimization or seo or and we would give away our ideas for nothing so responsibility and then relationships that's the black book uh -huh. so from seeing all those different people each and every week depending on the semester that you're working on for the last 15 years there's an enormous big black book of um of really good people doing some interesting stuff who know way more than i do okay i'm sure we're going to come and talk a bit more about your black book and uh, there's a quote by a guy called alan saunders which is life is what happens to you while you're busy making other plans yeah what sort of serendipity chance encounters happy accidents or life events have occurred that have changed the the course or direction of your journey in a significant way lots of things because that's how I, I live my life I go to places where I know no one and nothing so once you do that you then make things happen by sheer power of, of pushing forward um, and then coming up with an interesting idea with someone or like, so that could be you mm -hmm. for instance you know I reached out I saw that you were doing yeah. impossible podcasts I knew I was coming to New York I reach out to you you say that's great and then we, we say as we do and do as we say um, so you don't just say, yeah, that would be lovely and never get back in touch with me. You're just as accountable mm -hmm. as I am in making sure that we do as we say. And that's a reputational thing. So there's lots of things that happen serendipitously like that. But the, the one that did change my direction was when Ogilvy closed down the lab. The CEO at that time was more an Excel spreadsheet style CEO. And Was this in... At the time when Ogilvy decided to integrate under all one one brand, no, well, well before two before years earlier, oh, yeah, right, yeah. Okay. No, this was when um, things weren't going great, and she just thought they could do without the lab. But she tried to sell a story to me and have me uh, sign an NDA, and and it was pay me off. The story was going to be Nico and true entrepreneurial fashion is leaving Ogilvy, and we're so sad. And mm. anyone that knows her will know she's always wanted to set up her own company and be an entrepreneur and 
uh, Nogleby were going to be her first client. And I just said, no, I'm not. You're sacking me. What am I going to tell my team? They're all out of a job. And But you're my client for five minutes just so you can sell this story. It's not the truth. And I would prefer to take no money and not sign an NDA, but go with the truth. And the truth is you can't be seen to be an um, innovative company if you're getting rid of your R&D department, which everyone knows that was doing really, really well. Mm -hmm but not well enough to get money in, in terms of how you were looking at it from the spreadsheet. So by making that decision, I then was starting to interview and also setting up my company NYC at the same time. And I thought, you know, what? I'm going to take myself off to two random things. One is Hatch, which is in Montana, and the other was Summit. Um, at sea. sea yeah. yeah so I went to one of the first summit at seas for a couple of years and um, I knew no one and nothing and just got onto this boat with 3,000 people and it's like Ted meets Davos meets Burning Man and no Wi-Fi available and it, very daunting but a, a great atmosphere everyone's equal there's no hierarchy no VIP treatment and I, I, I met a guy I was in a jacuzzi <laughs> we were chatting as you do on a boat at yeah. Sea. yeah and um, and he said who are you and I said I'm Nicole from Nicole like no course, no more Ogilvy no yeah. more Ogilvy no more head of innovation yeah. and we started chatting he said oh my god you've got some incredible stories you need to write them down I said no no I'm not a writer he said no I'm, I'm a publisher and um, you're a woman in tech you're kicking ass you, they say no you do it anyway you've You've got some amazing case studies, you're a doer. You absolutely should get all these stories down. Now, had I taken the deal with Ogilvy, then I wouldn't have been able to freely then go about writing a book without worrying about lawyers and what could I say, mm. what shouldn't I say. And I was able to just completely go through life with integrity and not have to lie to anyone but I'd forget <laughs> what I was what I said to, to to who so I just it was the easiest thing for me it was the hardest thing at the time but then once I written the book it was the easiest thing for me to just be candid and never mean or uh, just I'm always gracious but just honest the, the I mean the standard press release for agencies when they disband departments or fire people is always they've gone on to spend more time with their family or pursue their entrepreneurial yeah. interests or whatever yeah but presumably you did have a strong entrepreneurial spirit i mean you were an entrepreneur yeah. to I use that term i was an entrepreneur i was definitely an entrepreneur and that's just a case of then being released to go off and f fulfill probably what was destined yeah. or in a, a burning ambition inside you. you there must have been times when no. in the in the late 2000s when you building up this amazing black book you must have considered I think because I was a mum mm -hmm. I had two young kids and and you know what it's like with university fees or school fees or all of those mm -hmm. kind of things and um, having a monthly salary is the biggest addiction yeah one of the biggest like third biggest addiction apparently so I was allowed to be an entrepreneur within a very within a large organization so I was an entrepreneur and when I left and I was kind of cut loose, it took me a good year to not worry every single month where the money's going to come in. And I got to the first year and, um, and my dad said, and we did well, and my dad said, why are you worrying each and every month? You just get to the first year. It's a construct that people have um, forced upon you, this monthly thing, these monthly bills, these... It's, it's 
it, you don't need to think of it like that. Just have you got to the first year and survived? Yes, you have. And then the second year, even better. So, but the first year was, was I didn't find mentally easy because I, you know, have a mortgage and I bought the house off of my ex-husband and uh, all the things that go with the scare, it being scary. But I kind of felt I was a little bit unemployable because I went on interviews at the same time and they'd all say they'd want you know a head of innovation and to do this that and the other and I would then get more into the conversation and I would say actually what you need to do is this this and this and they would say well yeah but we don't want to do that and so I would say well then that's not the job for me you you say you want innovation but you don't really so I kind of felt that I didn't really have a choice but to open up my own consulting company to work with enlightened people who really did want Mm-hmm. to affect some change. There's another quote I've used a couple of times. It's not the circumstances that define you, it's your response. Uh, you sort of knuckled down, really. You just got on with it. So yeah. regardless of the fear of the, the mortgage payments, yeah. the kids, uh, yeah. and the, the month to month, you, yeah. it didn't stop you. You could have been hired by many agencies willing to build their own R&D and innovation yeah. unit or gone in client side. But you chose to go down this route. You wrote the book, yeah, and did that. What do you think got? Because we often reach those points in the road where hmm. many people will withdraw or step back from the precipice and hmm. be engulfed by a certain amount of fear, and not take what is a risk. I mean, of course, as you say, the first year most businesses don't get it to that yeah. get to that first year. What was it that that gave you that sense of? Um, belief in yourself? Um, I guess when I was working at Ogilvy in the job I was doing, it was nothing to do with marketing. And it was much more to do with business and creativity and strategy and business across the whole business, not just the marketing department, supply chain, comms. And that was something that was interesting me. And I found that agency, well, where I was working, they didn't really care to solve those problems they just wanted to look at marketing and so to quote kind of John um, who is one of my lab partners my um, kind of black book partners it's, it's solving the wrong problem really well and so I didn't feel I wanted to go into like jumping from a frying pan into a fire mm-hmm. and every conversation I had with an agency just felt like that And I wanted to understand business in all its aspects. And um, so I kind of fell out of agency world, Um, outgrew it or wasn't really in it. Um, Like everybody else is in it. I wasn't an account man. I wasn't a planner. I wasn't a creative. I was this anomaly that just didn't really have a... Uh, like a square peg in a round hole so it is strange that we find and i'm sure john will have a lot to say about this that we live in a changing world where the imperative for creativity to be applied to solving the really important big business cultural societal problems there's never been a time like it for creativity to actually have its impact and for creative people to step forward and step up to the challenge Mm. and agencies Wherever you go, we'll talk about the power of creativity to create genuine change, but seem to be stuck in the groove of still delivering creativity in its very limited mm. domain, which is tends to be communication-based. Why do you think that is? Why, why aren't we seeing more examples of business-focused, real business transformational mm. creativity? Not just, I mean, we obviously there's 
digital transformation, business transformation, and all the big consultants are selling their services for millions of dollars delivering that. But it's, I don't think there's creativity at the heart of it. Yeah. And what you're doing seems to be fresh and different. Yeah. I think you can take it back to within the large organizations that are shareholder driven, it definitely can take it back to their business model. Their business model is, and similar to with consultants as well, is is there to put as many bodies on it as possible and charge by the hour. And I disrupted um, Ogilvy's business model with something at one time and I got into terrible trouble. But it was basically showing actually we just need, it was a Pizza Hut job and we just need three people to do it, two people client side, three people agency side, no more people on the job. It's going to be done. Um, there's no face-to-face meetings. There's no 10-page war and peace contact reports. It's going to be done in literally three weeks. Everyone had a role to play. And um, when it came to the shoot, then there was only going to be um, the client there and uh, the producer and director. And the very, very specific about what was going to be shot. It wasn't just a 20 second ad. It was 15 other bits of content that were going to go throughout the whole organization, including their internal comms. And it got to the first edit and there were no changes. And we made money because we didn't have to then put a new brief in, brief another creative team that's another hundred whatever it is by you know per hour for a copywriter and a art director and there's so many people involved now when they talk about working agile you can't work agile when Mm -hmm. there's so many cooks no but that's their business model and I got into terrible trouble with just trying to be again cutting through the bullshit and just being honest of I can see another way because I'm not looking at it from having to pay all those salaries and that huge building, which is why when you know I come to working with, with clients, maybe there's a different way to run your business. Maybe it's a leverage business model. Maybe you're, you don't need such a big building, all these maybes. And it was funny, John and I were working with a very large agency where they'd said they want to innovate at the core. And we did you know due diligence and and started to work out you know what does that even mean to you because you'd have five people saying five different things just because it's just a word and then we'd find out you know who their stake um who are their stakeholders what do they want and they d- couldn't even really define that and then we went into different kind of business transformation maybe you you don't have such a big building maybe you don't employ so many people all these maybes and someone around the table said but this is business transformation and we said well yeah that's the question you asked they said but but that's not what we we don't want to do that (laughs) which is good for us to know very early on but it's sometimes they they just keep saying these words but um transformation and as i go into with my book is is not an easy thing doing digital delivery of of tv commercials was not an easy thing you talk in the book about the fearless manifesto and Mm. touched on fear earlier that clearly and when it's coming up with new forms of creative solutions to solve business problems Mm. whether you call it business transformation or digital transformation you're always going to encounter fear fear of the unknown fear of what's going to happen to either the size of your business size of your department your balance sheet in the short term Mm. albeit maybe from the long-term benefit um what can you just explain a little bit about the facets of your fearless manifesto I think we all know when we come across someone who's like-minded, it almost kind of feels like they're a similar tribe because they want the same thing that you want. And 
obviously it would be anarchy if everyone was like that within organisations. You need a little bit, it's like the de bono hat theory, mm-hmm. a little bit of everything. But I think in times of change, which is what we're going through now, because um, it's all changing so quickly, you do need someone to say, but there might be another way or to question things or be curious or to say why. And it's funny, in, in my book, I talk about... Um, the rough diamond scheme that I set up because I I specifically set it up because I wanted some of that fearlessness from kids who are about to be expelled from schools because I'd noticed within um, Ogilvy that they were always hiring white middle-class Oxford educated and I actually to do the changes I needed I needed them to think maybe there's another way and question it and be curious and be a pain in the ass mm-hmm. so I set up Rough Diamond to get in those kids age 14 to 16 who and I wanted the ones who were about to be expelled and they were in areas of London Greenwich Tower Hamlets Hackney that were diverse thinkers so they 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 were used to being creative and getting out of um, issues. Maybe their one of their parents was an alcoholic, or only cha- only one parent families, or all of these different things that weren't the usual way in which most people in the agency were thinking. And I remember setting it up um, or talking about it initially, and the chairman at the time said, "This isn't something I want you to do," and I ignored him. Um, uh, he said no, and I did it anyway. And two years later, we'd put this program together which was amazing and um, he came down to my office one day and said I've just had lunch with the Dean of Ravensbourne so I said oh so, uh, <laughs> yeah and he said and he said that he's been working with you and I said yeah we've done kind of this much stuff and he said that was a really good idea of mine <laughs> so but, it's yeah. it takes that fear I could have easily been fired but I knew for sure that that was the only way forward to try and get a, an injection of diverse thinkers mm-hmm. into that kind of organisation. Yeah, because you talk about in the in the Fearless Manifesto the uh, the dawning of an alchemist, and um, I think that's uh, in, the important facet is to have the ability within a, an agency, a traditional network of like people that can that can create alchemy, can yeah. turn the hands to anything, yeah. and do the unexpected. Yeah. I they ha- they used to hang them at the stake. Yeah. Well, they used to burn them at the stake rather. Fortunately, you were you escaped before you yeah. got burned. So, or maybe you were just mildly burned. Um, I'm going to go back and talk a bit more about curiosity because yeah. I know you're known for your innovation, mm. and that's a title that you've you've held, an R and D. But for me, I think it's your curiosity that seems to be the driver of mm. your success in innovation. And how, what would your advice be to any parent or teacher? that's trying to instill more curiosity in their children Mm. or their pupils? Because you've obviously done it as well with, you've had success with the teams you've built. Yeah. So there's got to be some... Something you can pass on. I think a lot of it to do is also to do with emotional intelligence, and I don't think people play um, to that strength. It's in schools, and it's to, it's to tick boxes. It's to get all these kids through and churn them out like a you know like a sausage factory. And if we go with say my son who was about to be expelled from school pretty much every month, and my daughter, I, they didn't even know who I was because she was a straight A student, but he. When I really um, kind of quizzed the headmaster, he wasn't actually doing anything wrong. He was just curious. And he would say, well, why? And who says? And how come? And, um, but that was seen as disruptive. Like they say, sit down and shut up and I don't want to hear from you in eight hours. But he couldn't do that because his personality is naturally 
curious. I think Seth, Seth Godin did a blog post about hunters and farmers in that hunter mentality, naturally, if they hear a noise, they perk up and they're looking out the window and they're then told, sit down and, and concentrate. Mm-hmm. If there was a little bit of leeway with though, if you, there was an ounce of emotional intelligence with, with teachers or or um, people within the work environment, they would understand that that's actually something to be embraced mm-hmm. and to give them a little bit more leeway to go and find um, some ways in which their creativity and curiosity can fix something. I mean, Max did really well in school in the end, but that's because I was on his on the case with his headmaster the whole time. But one thing that we his headmaster was really good with, we'd found a, a teacher in the school who was a translator teacher, as in he understood Max and he understood the teachers. So therefore, if one of the teachers gave Max an issue, Max, rather than respond back and react back, like cause and effect, he could take it to Mr. Wilson and say what had happened and Mr. Wilson could um, say, but what um, what the teacher really means is this. And then Max could say, oh, well, that's okay. So there was, a, there was a language issue and I found that I had exactly the same issues at Ogilvy. When I was at GGT, everyone spoke my language. I didn't even question that I was different. I, everyone was like me. Same at Simon's Palmer. Everyone, we were the same. I went to Ogilvy and it was a very, very different style of organisation and I felt I stuck out like a sore thumb. So I think emotion, understanding emotional intelligence and, and what's driving uh, people to do what they do. I mean, we used to have tests all the time and my strengths were, say, Gemma's weaknesses and her um, strengths were my weaknesses. And But you have to know yourself well enough to not be scared and to, to have a strong sense of, of self-esteem. And we would do things like um, emotional intelligence testing in, in times of the day. So one of our team... Found, was really struggling to get up in the morning and rather than reprimand her um, or take it to HR, we just put her hours to starting at 11 mm-hmm. and she flourished. So it's just having a bit of common sense, actually. Okay. A couple of things that just made me think of while you were discussing that. The I don't know if you've read the Noel Yuval Harari's book, 21 Rules for the 21st Century. Yeah, in the process of, but not... Yeah, well, there's a, I, I should remember what it is, but he talks about the four, the four Cs, the important uh, facets of any education moving forward, and one mm. of them, obviously, is creativity and cu- or curiosity. It needs to be instilled in children to prepare them for the world we're moving into as we mm. go through massive periods of upheaval and change and artificial intelligence. And also, Ryder Carroll the ADD sufferer turned product designer and creator of the Bullet Journal. And he recounted a great story of how um, he was at school. He had one German teacher that spotted that when he was doodling, he was paying attention. But when he was looking at her, his mind was elsewhere. And it was only through this recognition of that teacher and then her being able to translate Mm. that behaviour to understand that he then start to understand that what he was doing wasn't wrong but it mm. was actually just his way of learning and that's led to him having this amazing bestseller called the bullet journal so it's it's, it's incredible when yeah. you I can identify these translators but the shame of it is just like with the work environment is that they they have fixed kpis that don't allow them to take the trouble and the time to spot outside of that 
So therefore, they're they're doing the the marking. They're up late. They've got thirty kids. They're the same with with agency life. They've got two hour journey to get to a meeting. They've got a meeting of five hours. They've got a, a contact report to do. There, there's no time to actually give to being curious、mm-hmm. or questioning something because that's too. It's it's a pain. This is probably quite a nice segue to bring in John. Um, when we're talking about creativity and, and innovation, in, innovation in, and business, in, in the broader business context, because it's a natural human behaviour to resist change, and and even if it's not fearful of uncer- fear of uncertainty, there's a certain resistance to it and、uh, predilection just to continue to operate in the in the ways that've generated success in the past. John, how do you work with businesses to open up their, let's say, their neural pathways to opportunity? And encourage them to see the possibilities and opportunities that are open to them through identifying maybe where problems lie that they haven't considered. Yeah, it's such a good question. The、um, the technique I've found works most,、um, in fact, always works, is to present them with their. Language displayed visually in front of them,、mm. so I kind of confront people with their own statement in terms of language, and and I visualise that on a wall. And it, what tends to happen is when they're with their peers, they all see that they all don't share the same definition. So it's kind of a beguiling,、um, charming way of getting them to realise that they don't really know what they're talking about. <laughs> And quite often,、um, and I don't mean that always mischievously, but quite often it is because a lot of people will have built into their soundtrack things that they've learnt over a long period of time. So we're talking here about behavioural change, aren't we? And overcoming the habits. And the only way I've been able to get people to change is by confronting them with the insanity of their、um, statement. And it's 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 as simple as that. Clearly. I'm working in a, a kind of systems thinking sense, so I explode the challenge for them way beyond their own remit and beyond their own part of their job and beyond their own organisational construct. So they start to see the adjacencies and the implications of their own bit of the puzzle until they see exploded in front of them the entire system of their operation, and then they realise even more why it isn't going to work. And then you then you've got them to the. I think it was back in the day we all learnt that a cancer patient doesn't ever recover until they fully realise they've got cancer,、mm-hmm. and it's it's bits a bit like that. So you get them to the trough of despond, and then you build them back up again. And how do you arrive at the the point at which you can display, depict everything they've fed to you visually?、Uh, that sounds like a, a fairly intense investigative. Process to deconstruct and to draw out of individuals within an organisation their perceptions to their current reality. Yeah, that's a great point, and it is true. We have to spend quite a lot of time forensically understanding the context within which they operate. I heard a lovely story recently from a chap called Conrad Wolfram, who's one of the world's top mathematicians. Wolfram and, Alpha. Yeah, yeah, of course. And.、Um, I was transfixed because he stood up in front of four hundred people and said, "We've got to stop teaching our children maths." It was such an amazing moment. There he is, the world's leading mathematician at that time, and he said, "What we need to do is teach them computational thinking." And so we all looked at each other and thought, "What's that?" And it's basically the art of deconstructing.
a problem into all of its constituent parts and then building them back up again. So he said, if you want to teach your children maths, he said, tell them that the big wheel and on the pedal is the bigger than the one on the axle and they'll go this much faster depending on how big the big one is and how small the small one is. And you think that makes complete sense. And of course, that engages the brain. So we do a similar thing without realizing it, which is to abstract all of the bits of information, not in such a complicated way initially anyway, because they just wouldn't engage with it, but in a as simple a way as we possibly can on a framework, on a wall, which could be 100 feet long, and start to walk them through, step them through the logic of the fact that this isn't going to work if this isn't in place and so on and so forth until they realize there's no hiding place. So they just either have to change their mind or change the question that they're asking themselves, which is such a wonderful thing to do. <laughs> How do you decide or how do the organizations decide the stakeholders that need to be within this this process? Yeah, great question. Um, we start with an exam question, which is our method, uh, our language for what is the question that's going to get everybody's attention and would dictate who needs to be there if the we were to answer that question. And what's really fascinating about that is the question's often wrong but the intent is right. So after they've noodled with that question a little while, they realize, well, actually, we need to bring different people in than we thought we were going to bring into this conversation. So I'm in New York this week with a with a client where exactly that happened. You know, we started with the exam question and they said, we're going to be working with these 15, 20 people. And by the time we've been through the pro process of understanding the exam question properly, we're now at 30 people that are going to be in that room, which isn't always a good thing, but um, that's a different Who provides you with the question that you have to answer? We help the client work that out. The presenting question is often we need to change our operation and be more successful and take this amount of money off the bottom line or, you know, whatever. But actually, they, the question should be as just as much about what's getting in our way of being successful. So the art of writing the exam question has become... Has become um, quite critical for us so we have to get a little bit of the prize the motivational aspect of it in but also make sure it allows us to dig at the root cause because people are so uh, as Nick said so busy doing the day job mm -hmm. they forget actually what they're doing and they've become so conditioned to coming up with the very uh, professional answer which is the wrong answer because they can because they've defended their position on it for so long, they've forgotten looking, forgotten that the world's changed. Or, or that's how they've been measured. The only yeah, KPI exactly. is financial. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. They're not. They're not. It's it's a really interesting thing, transformation and change, because businesses are built to be so resilient to change. Mm -hmm. They're not built to live in the world that we're living in now. So a lot of our. Um, work these days is getting people to realize that if they continue with the operating model that they've got right now, they're going to fall off a cliff. Mm -hmm. And they've got to stop building in resilience because they're no longer going to be agile. You know, these are the balance. This is the balance that people have to get their heads around. Do you get the sense that there are presumably businesses must be fearful of the disruptive innovators to take Clayton Christensen's of term. But at the same time, even where there isn't a disruptive innovator on the horizon, there must also be fear of just the lack of ability to change themselves. And where's the fear coming from? 
such an interesting one. I mean, we're working with massive organizations where whilst they're fearful, mm -hmm. they lack a burning platform. So there's no driver to change, mm -hmm. so they don't. And I firmly believe that some of them will go out of business. But they're coming to you, they must have a sense that there's something they need to do. So there's a, an impetus and a drive and a willingness to explore new pathways. In many cases, yes. And that, that's taken an enlightened leader mm. to spot that they really need to do something before they fall off the cliff. Mm. Um, a lot of, unfortunately, quite a lot of our work is with people that are just doing a, a, a tick box, ticking the box. You know, they've, they've got to create a new report for a, this reason or that reason. And so that's a bit of a shame because they're never actually going to implement the result of what we're doing which we're trying to get much smarter at not doing. Mm. That was what I mean, my next question yeah. about what is your yeah. role in implementation of change? Well, that's a, that's a really interesting one as well. I mean, the fact is we try to be completely impartial as to the outcome. Uh -huh. So we try and say we deliberately do not want to be around to benefit from our advice to you because that would be convenient for us. That's the consulting model. Uh -huh. where it's very convenient for them to come up with a set of solutions that only they can answer. And because I was a client before I do what I do now, um, I found that in completely unfair and I couldn't get the impartial advice. Increasingly, we're asked to stick around because they realize that our integrity is there and that, that we wouldn't have come up with an answer that can, was convenient for us. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, it's such a subtle balance, that, of getting that right. So we'll try and arm. And so, so here's another way of putting it. We try and transfer the capability for the future to the people that are in the business. How about that? Because it's their job. Mm -hmm. So whilst... Can you say that again? We transfer the capability we, to... Yeah, so we transfer the capability of their destiny and their future to them by arming them with the tools and equipment and techniques that we do as we go through the process. Mm -hmm. So they should, in, in theory, be capable of picking it up and carrying on with it. You asked some really interesting and very insightful questions earlier as to why we humans do not change, or, or rather do not um, solve the really complex problems that society mm -hmm. demands of us. And I think there's, I mean, we could talk a, a for hours and hours about mm. that particular question alone. And a lot of it comes down to the fact that people have limited capacity or bandwidth to really think hard enough for it to change the neural pathway mm -hmm. that shifts their mindset. Yeah. Now, that's a neuroscience answer to your question, which is perhaps a bit too complex, but we do hardwire our habits and it takes time and practice and learning and repeating so when was the last time you changed your behavior? Well, <laughs> might not be the best person to ask about that because I'm considering I've just been talking about BJ Fogg's tiny habits and how right, to okay. go about changing behavior and, uh, but it's and trying to do it myself. Yeah, it's and, uh, tough, right? I've radically changed my, my diet well done. at the end of last year. Yeah. Um, and yeah, there have been little ups and downs, but I'm pretty much on the, on the yeah. track for maintaining that. So you'd be in what we would call the more enlightened end of the spectrum. The vast majority of people in organizations that we work with, large corporates, big brands, you know, global governments, there's no motivation. As Nick said, you know, their KPIs are do that. We don't want you to be innovative. We don't want you to be disruptive because to us that's risk. 
and we're not capable. And I guess the final point on this is that there is no guidebook for where we are right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we have to test and learn, and their organisations are not good with that. So what they it, say, sorry, I'm, I agree with you. There's no guidebook, but that also applies at previous phases in history. I think the difference is it's the pace of the change that's happening exactly. at the moment yeah, that's right. that allows for maybe iterative development and learning. And organisations have been able to evolve with in at a pace in time, but the acceleration or the exponential growth and and I've, I've seen a a graph of something that that looks at that, that that means that most businesses are set to fail because they're just not going to be physically mm. or mentally capable of maintaining the pace that they need to operate at, and it, which is why it uh, supports um, Christensen's disruptive argument. Yeah. And that's exactly what I was trying to do with um, Ogilvy, was doing these semesters, bringing the outside world in um, regularly, by giving them other ways to um, make money was my way of, of, of having them do more than just their usual TV and print. Mm -hmm. Because it was the only way that, because they weren't measured on what's going on in the outside world and um, being curious, that was my role to bring the outside world mm -hmm. in yeah. to, um, to make it relevant to their business. There's a... Um a quote, I think it was a Hemingway book, I can't remember which one it was, which is life happens slowly then all at once. <laughs> and I think that's the reality of what most businesses are facing. They, they know that the change is happening, but it might be happening slowly and suddenly before you know it, huh. their business model has been disruptive. Their, yeah, their a, customer base is gone. Organisations are complex things. I mean, there are processes, there are procedures, there are systems, there's infrastructure, there's people. That's a recipe for absolute disaster yeah. if you want to try and change all of that lot in anyone at any one time and there are people who have got huge investment in the fact that they made the decision to put those systems in so when it suddenly realized that those systems are what's holding the business back particularly if they've come from a pwc or a right. mckinsey and someone's <laughs> Which, paid millions of dollars to exactly actually yeah we just spent yeah. six million on that mm -hmm. piece of software and now it's already out of date you know, these are real things, and that's that takes real brave. That takes big balls to mm -hmm. to go and cut that out of the business, and so they don't. So there's there's huge factors and dynamics going on here, which 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 um, you know are tough. I'm going to ask you just a question that wasn't on my list, and plus to both of you, you read a lot today about the perception of Gen Z and millennials' expectation of businesses to be purposeful and to be, let's say, have a more phil philanthropic intent. Mm. What's your sense of that, um, having worked with a lot of large organisations, and whether it be about helping businesses retain more staff of that mm. generation mm. or attract more customers? Is this something you think is a, applies to just that generation, or is it something that's just happened to... We've got more, there's just more written about it because purpose is in the ether. I, I from um, my experience, from my experience, a couple of things. John, you can um, say your point of view, but I have a, a 23 year old, and she went the route of university and got a first, and then she was going to go into corporate world and got a job as a graduate trainee and lasted a, a 
couple of months and was crying and just said, I can't do this. I can't, they micromanage me. It takes me a week to get an email out. They change and to the, and there was no feeling that they were doing anything worthwhile in her mind. She couldn't understand. She was almost thought she was missing something. I said, no, this is how it is. Mm. (laughs) And so after much soul searching, I said, come with me and and do the book launch for me take 10 days off from work and and let's try and work out what your you know what it is that you really want to do because she couldn't imagine having a life like that every day day in day out and cut a long story short kind of John did a a wall with her and um, kind of came out with what she really loves doing which is actually personal training and fitness and health and so she's now uh, a has a portfolio of things as well as running her own gym and doing various other things and she's loving it she still has the emotional crisis of being an entrepreneur and where's the money coming in but she's much she's preferring it to working in industry with their rules and regulations and she couldn't stand the nine to five and why did you have to work in the office when you technology means that you could work outside Mm -hmm. so that's one aspect the other aspect is look at Everyone, there's so many in the gig economy, which means that people are not happy with how companies are treating them. And they think, you know what, we'll do it for ourselves. We'll be in control of our own destiny. And I've been following social philanthropy and um, and social enterprise. There's a guy called Sir Ronald Cohen, who's a big investor in, in companies that make money, but by doing good. Mm. So they're not NGOs and they're not charities, but they are making money, but with a purpose. Yeah, I think I'd just go to the other end of the spectrum just to make the answer to your question. I think there are more senior executives now who are realizing that if they don't get close to their, their customer, they will fail. And I think customers are becoming, that's all of us, right? Consumers are becoming so much more aware of issues. And if there's a choice for them to change to a business that has got more purpose, and for purpose we can read anything, you know, sustainability, helping Mm -hmm. poverty, stricken individuals, whatever it might be, uh, human trafficking. And there are some examples now starting to come out, some famous ones where organizations have grabbed hold of an initiative and we could call it cynical because it might be marketing pure and simple or it could be actually because there is a conscientiousness there at the leadership level and we've been following Paul Pullman Mm. um, over the last year Mm. um, Unilever Unilever, Mm. and um, even you know the lesser known but big ones I mean the Danone um, CEO was very um, also came out with some big big statements on this so I'm hopeful that more more and more organizations and particularly the more entrepreneurial and new businesses that are coming out are trying very much harder to make this about the real world and about society and looking after their people and bringing more diversity and turning that into something that you can you know you can actually see that they're being real about and we're you know we're based in soho um so we see virtually every store down that part of town really trying to make an effort to Soho in London or Soho? Soho in New York. In New York, right. So, whether it be sustain, sustainability, um, there's a, a very interesting guy that John and I know called Justin Dillon. And um, he, 
set something up called um, a slavery index and it was for everyone uh, any individual to go on to that slavery index and say who they were how they lived their life and it would literally come up and say how many slaves you were employing today in modern day world and what he's done is he's then moved that into um large organizations walmart and target where it's like a SaaS platform where it can be added onto um, their organization and just show exactly where the issues are within the company and how many slaves they're employing so it's not just sustainability and get the right materials or this particular thing is human slavery which is mm. going on That's everywhere amazing. i'll check that out i'll put that in the show notes mm. yeah he's a he's a great guy um yeah so I'm hopeful. Okay. Uh, just building on that, one of the questions I'd like to ask guests, it's if you were handed the keys to the mayor's office, that could be mayor of London, mayor, mayor of New York, or even better, the White House or Downing Street. What would be the key changes that you would start to make to improve the future opportunities for <laughs> oh people? God. Don't start with the White House. <laughs> That's too easy. Uh, well, we need an easy That's question just- in there. <laughs> You've got you've got to start off with things that are easy to change initially. So not these big, huge gestures, but just small things that you can um, change. I've always found in, in the area that I've been working in, not that I can even think of what it would be like running a, a country, etc. But you do a lot of small changes and you turn around after a year and it, that you can absolutely notice the change. You can't do the big changes. They just end up um, paralyzing you. But if you can do the small changes, little and often, that then leads to serendipity, alchemy, meeting someone else who can help you do something else. And before you look around, you it's, you kind of have, have made um, a big dent in, in society. I think um, a few years ago, I was hopeful that technology was going to change the way in which we we did voting and leadership mm-hmm. and government and that we could all have a much fairer vote. And I think the one thing that we've got to change coming up is the way that we the way that politics works personally mm-hmm. in, in the UK. It's been a while since you've been there, but I'm sure you've kept up. Oh, of course. Well, with what's going on. Actually, I mean, with the Scottish vote for independence and with Brexit. Yeah, exactly. So I think we're suffering from... I used to call it the unholy trinity, which was politics, media, and uh, business. We're all kind of in this deadlock where it suited the media to be plus or minus at any given time to to just sell newspapers and newspapers. I'm being very generalist Mm -hmm. with this. Governments would try and keep business happy, and they'd have to try and keep the media happy. So nobody won, and nobody knew where they were. And in the last couple of years, you know, the, certainly in this country, you know, with fake this and fake that and very cynical um, attempts to gain power through, you know, corrupt means. Mm-hmm. And as Nick said, it's, that's a big thing. It's not a little thing, but there are ways in which you could tackle little things. And I think it doesn't encourage leadership to go into politics. And I don't want to get into political discussion here, but to me it comes back to leadership, mindset, the conditioning of whole areas of society, which if I could do anything about that, that's probably where I'd start. I'd just love to see a wall, (laughs) one of your walls. That's the term for it, isn't it? It is, Your wall. Um, I would love to see one of those with the questions being asked of you by a leader of one of the countries in question. 
Well, we're, it's interesting. We're, we're doing something, but if you find anybody that would like to do that, I'd do it for nothing. Yeah. Even a city, I think yeah. it would be fascinating. Yeah, absolutely right. I'm going to interview a mayor, um, Councillor Kenyatta Johnson, I'm hoping, in the next uh, month or so, who is councillor, obviously, on the mayor's team in Philadelphia. Mm. And they're, a pro- they're a city just like um, Chicago with massive problems of, obviously, opioid crisis. Yeah gun crime, lack of opportunity. So if I can make an introduction there, I think that would be a very interesting conversation to have. So we'll keep that one. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. These are important issues. I'd like to do some quick fire questions um, or quickish. And you can both answer these. What principles do you stand by? Integrity, honesty. Okay, John. Wow. Um, yeah, I was, I was probably going to steal a couple of nicks, actually. Mm-hmm. What hard choices have you had to make that might have been pretty tough at the time, but turned out to be the right, the right decision in the end? Divorce. Uh, at the time, you know, I'd been with my childhood sweethearts from when I was 14. So got married early, had kids early, and I probably should have um, got out of it sooner. But you don't know what you don't know, and you all you know is is, is what you've... Um, grown up with and it wasn't until you know going through three four years of this of on his roller coaster that I then finally had the courage to say okay no more and stuck with it and six months later eight months later I just realized it was the best thing that I ever did and fear held me back fear of the unknown but um, never went through lawyers never badmouthed him um, always kind of was very gracious, but that was for me probably a defining moment of breaking away from a small-minded, different kind of um, suburban world into just opening myself up to a glo- being a global citizen, I guess. I think my answer to the early one, by the way, was probably in the area of um, creativity, generosity, decision-making and decision quality, if I could put it like mm. that. The, the things that I've done um, was leaving businesses when I got comfortable, when it was just too comfortable. So I I was told I was going to have a corner office and a bigger car, and the following day I went and resigned. And That's a very hard thing to do, because most of us seek comfort. Yeah, I've never been comfortable. I've even, you know, if if I can't change the room around every five minutes I'm I'm not comfortable with mm-hmm. you know I, I just have to make change happen because you know it's just that's in your in, in my, your DNA in my DNA yeah and I suppose that's where your serendipitous journey is taking you to actually be a change maker for organisations yeah, yeah exactly interesting John, John is definitely around the thinking and the um, the strategy and I the reason we work so well is I'm about the doing but there's no point doing if you've, you're, you're fixing the wrong problem. Mm-hmm. And there's no point having a great strategy without the doing. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Perfect partnership. Where do you go um, or what do you do to discover new ideas or when you need space to think? Come to New York. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, we spent the whole day today just um, wandering around from cafe to cafe and graffiti to graffiti and just being hugely inspired by people watching and a city that is vibrant and all the shops especially 
you know, downtown in Soho, everything is different. Everyone is vying for your attention in the most creative way. I think we we have been lucky to travel to some of the most mm. crazy parts of the world, like you know, the wrong side of the island of Cuba, um, Vietnam, with all of its crazy. You know, if you've ever been to the yeah. Far East, it's just mm. mad. And just you know, being on safari this year yeah. and sitting in an island with no nothing around. You know, all of those different stimulus mm. stimuli 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 just. Mm. Just do it for me. Mm-hmm. An avid reading stuff that I shouldn't be or clicking on things that are just not naturally the first thing to click on. It's like doing things just because they mm-hmm. just wake you up. Mm. Uh, who are you? I think I know your answer to this probably, Nicole. Um, who are your greatest influences and inspirations? I would say my dad. Um, Mike Yershon and Dave Trott Mm. Uh, but actually my kids because they've taught me so much um, about myself and I didn't you don't know how to parent you don't get a parenting manual and it's been an incredible journey just being around them and and having to learn different ways to handle them I mean I've been very lucky with the jobs that I've always done has always been about getting things out of people that don't want to do something, whether it be in traffic and you need someone to do some copy or mm. write, uh, draw something up and, and they've got other things that they want to do, but I know that that's got to be done. So you get very used to trying to work with with uh, human beings into how to get the best out of them. So I always find people fascinating. And I always like looking out for people who fill me with energy. It's almost like a huge boost of, wow, that was incredible. Uh, I, I, that for me is, um, is exhilarating when I find people like that, my tribe. And you could see them twice in a week or once in two years and you'd still get the same buzz. Okay. John? Um, Roger Martin, who was the Dean of Rotman School of Business, mm-hmm. who coined the phrase design thinking ah, right, okay. and integrative thinking yeah, yeah. and a lot of other thinkings and whether it was him or not he kind of took a lot of credit for it and he wrote a great book called The Design of Business um, my art teacher back at school when I was 11 who took me under his wing and made me realise it was okay to still be drawing on a piece of paper after the age of 11 mm. um, unlike many kids get told to put the crayons away he just told me to get them out uh, Jean-Michel Basquiat, actually, just a, yeah. a great inspiration. And I guess John Lennon just wrote the most incredible things for me and made me realise that it was okay to like music and the arts and creativity and just be a bit out there and do stuff. So people Good like actors. that. That's a question I probably shouldn't be asking you, Nicole, but how do you keep up with technology, whether it be personally or in business? It's really easy for me, thank goodness, because I just find where nobody else goes and then just take myself off mm-hmm. and just say yes um, and deal with the consequences after. Um, and I always find, because I'm an optimistic person, I'll just always make the best of those kind of situations. So um, it's I, I, I follow certain people, uh, whether it be on 
social media, Twitter, LinkedIn, whatever, that nobody else really follows or I'll see something in someone that no one else really sees. And I have an amazing connector memory. So I could see something six years ago or meet someone six years ago and be given a problem and my brain just immediately connects it. Great talent to have. Yeah. Technology. Technology. Yeah. Well, I was lucky to go to, um, I was in Cambridge at the time when the microcomputer industry kicked off in, in the UK. It was a real privilege working with people who became quite rich and famous. But some real legends here. Real legends, yeah. yeah. And the, the BBC microcomputer, I was responsible for launching that along with you know the senior executives of that business, which is a real privilege. But more interestingly, we actually spawned another company called Arm Technologies, which created the chipset which is in a, a lot of mobile phones and it was just we didn't know what we were doing at the time but it became an um, incredible story so I was very privileged and I would probably be the the I have every gadget <laughs> known to man I mean if you visit my apartment in London which you must uh, you will see everything moves and you can speak to everything and Mm. It's just a joy, really. It's a, it's a bit well, of a... It's curiosity, and we're always looking for how how can you do things different or better, or and so we're always on the lookout for, well, that could be interesting, and we'll always try something. So when before even people were talking about Alexa or voice control, we already were, were using it and working on it just to work out, well, does it work, or does it work for mm. us, or is it relevant? Is it a waste of time? Is it better for me to just get up and turn the light on or off and it's amazing how once you use something you then can have an opinion mm. mm-hmm. very true um yeah I, I could talk at length about that as well but then anyway, <laughs> i'm gonna get into the last couple of questions uh the impossible question what would your advice be to someone let's say 20 years 25 years behind you that's got a dream a goal a grand ambition but it's been told by either their peers, their parents, or whoever, people around them, that, ah, that's impossible. You'll never do that. Well, nothing's impossible. If if that person um, has a strong enough sense of self, they'll be able to do anything that they want to. I really do believe that. And if they they connect the right dots and go to the right people, they're with the wrong people. They'll build one of those black books. Yeah, if the, and and it's is really difficult when you're younger. I see how my kids are with social media, and they don't like it in terms of they feel uncomfortable or fuck it. Just um, just put yourself out there. What's the worst that's going to happen? That you get rejected. So what? Get on with it and 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 just keep battling away. Didn't Dave Trot have a great quote about rejection. He said, if you can't accept rejection, you'll never make any progress, I think it was. Something exactly. like that, yeah. Yeah, that's exactly how I feel. Yeah. Yeah, I, mean, I think that's the right answer. Go and prove them wrong. Mm-hmm. Okay. If anybody tells you that. And that means you're onto a winner, probably. If, if the people who are 20 years older or 30 years older than you tell you, you that's the wrong thing to do, it's probably the right thing to do. Yeah, teenage rebellion. They'll yeah. say black, you then say white. Sounds good. Um what book should we offer our listeners for the best comments in the comment section? Oh, God. I have now, obviously, obviously. <laughs> we're going to be offering one called Rough Diamond by a person called Nicole Yershon, <laughs> uh, published recently. But if there was another book that someone should read that you felt would arm them to be in a better position to face the future? 
Um, oh God, that's really put me on the spot because we have so many books on the go, don't we? At, at home that we'll read a, a bit, put it down, then something else looks good and we'll pick that up. And I think actually just there's not one particular book. It's like saying, listen to one piece of music. There's just so many things out there. Find something that is going to really make you feel, um, that's going to give you that buzz. And and just then it's almost like the Amazon, if you like this, if you read this, then you're like this. Just be open-minded to try a few different things. Roger Martin's book. Okay. The Design of Business. Fine. I'm pretty sure it's that way around, or the Business <clears throat> of Design. I think it's the Design of Business. Great, that's on the list. Who should we interview next? <laughs> Just Justin Dillon, who did the Slavery Index. Okay. He's, he's such a, a, a legend. I saw him in New York, not last year, the year before. He was... He was um, uh, pushing forward with his book and I was just on you know beginning to do my book but he is a brilliant guy isn't he he's a brilliant guy I would interview Eve Bergquist he's based out of LA and what does he's he a, a rock star AI um, genius basically mm. check him out he's, um, we've had the privilege to come to know him over the last few weeks and uh, I won't say any more about what we're working on because it's classified but okay. lovely guy and um, I could sit and hear him talk about AI and he'll make it relevant to every conversation well, we've had tonight that would be fantastic mm -hmm. so I look forward to Andre Angel oh wow yes. we're getting a list Andre here Angel, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to give you all my black book contacts. No, but that's, but that's great. I will, we did so bad answering all the other questions. Yeah. We're, we're doing well on this. I one. will ask you um, for a connection to Justin, to Eve. And uh, if, yeah. they don't, uh, if they're not available, then maybe Andre. Yeah, it'd be yeah. a pleasure. I would just like to finish to say thank you very much for your time. I appreciate you're on a, a working vacation, um, busman's holiday, whatever we say in the yeah. UK. Um, but... Our, I mean, I started the conversation saying, Nicole, I'd known you for a long time and respected your uh, enduring optimism, your integrity, as you said, and the courageousness to do what you've done for your career in a big agency like Ogilvy. And what I feel now is that I'm left with a sense of your resilient, restless pursuit of driving po positive progress and transformation mm. is really what you're your story and your journey has been about. And it feels to me like you're just on the next chapter and I'm really looking forward to seeing what uh, NYC does beyond NYC. Yeah, me too. I'm just getting started. Yeah, and <laughs> obviously with John, what you're doing with your visual problem solving and telling the, maybe the future stories of businesses is also fascinating and I look forward to learning more about that as well. And if people want to check you out and find out more about what you're doing, where shall they go? Well, I'm really lucky because there's only one Nicole Yershon, as That's in, very true. Uh, yeah, yeah, my parents obviously understood SEO and uh, the <laughs> internet. Um, so everything is under my my name. And if you went to my website, it's grouppartners.online mm -hmm. or .net. Either will get you there, and it's um, it's kind of fun. Okay, look forward to that. Really enjoyed your questions. They yeah, were very, thank you so much. Okay. Thanks very much, guys. Okay, folks, that's it for this week. If you like the show, please subscribe and ideally give us a five-star rating and a review because it helps more people discover us. 
Just go to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to subscribe and rate. For now, stay curious, be creative, and be open to serendipity. See you next time.